This episode starts with Richard reading his heart-wrenching eulogy to his father. Richard says his father had been desperately searching for years and had spent most of his life running from himself until he could no longer cope with the pain he experienced every day. This episode of Human Cogs explores the often taboo topic of suicide, the intergenerational impact of secrets, shame and mental illness in Richard's family, and his own journey to find forgiveness and empathy for his father. Richard now accepts there was nothing he could have done to save his dad, and that finding ways to manage his own depression and suicidal thoughts is the way forward to change the cycle and change the story for his family. Now, this is a pretty raw conversation of transition and despair, and it lays bare the emotional and turbulent human experience of depression and what happens in the emotional wake of losing a parent to suicide. Conversations about suicide are uncomfortable, but suicide is a topic that touches so many of us and an issue that we all need to address. If this episode is distressing or triggering, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Here's our conversation with Richard. Dad had a tough life and endured a lot of pain and hardship, but I don't want to focus on that today. I think there has been enough darkness already and I want people to celebrate Phil, the person we all knew and loved. He spent most of his days as a kid playing in the streets of Surrey Hills with his mates, building billy carts, playing at the creek behind the family home and playing cricket out in the street with his favourite dog, Goldie. I think when people think of Phil, you'll picture... The beard rub, the finger on the lip, the stance, the bent hand. He loved his music as well. Couldn't dance for shit. Not a rhythmic bone in his body, but that didn't stop him from having the sunroof open, windows down and Mumford & Sons, The Killers, Roy Orbison, Crowded House, Fleetwood Mac or Queen absolutely blaring while he was singing the wrong lyrics and tapping out of time. He loved his fishing, his hawks, his darts, his cooking, using his hands and having a laugh while with his loved ones. When remembering my father, don't try and understand how he passed away or why it happened. That is a good thing. You are lucky if you do not understand. Just know my dad, Phil, was very ill. He had been battling his demons his entire life and over the past few years, they were slowly taking over and killing him. He wasn't able to ask or to receive help. He was just exhausted from fighting them And now he is finally at peace. I'll miss you, Flip It. So we've just listened, Richard, to the eulogy that you wrote for your dad. And it really gives an insight, not only into his life, but into your relationship with him and to your family unit. And something you just said that really moved me was that your dad raised three children who would do anything for each other. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about what it was like for you growing up as a young child. I guess as any young child, you grow up and especially through the teen years and you think, you know, you've got a pretty pretty tough, you know, parents are mean and, and all that kind of thing and growing up with an older brother and younger sister, you're all fighting all the time and that's just natural. But well, I look back now and know how good we had it with a very, very strong family and that goes into extended family. That bit in there when I said we would do anything for each other, that is so true. Even growing up as kids, even when we were fighting, if something were to happen, that all gets put aside and 
um, it's just instinct to step in um, for your family, um, even if that's protecting each other from unknowns. And I know that happened for our younger sister at times. We would protect her from certain things that have happened, whether or not that's, I don't know, done her harm or good in the long run. Um, that's just how it was. Yeah, we we were the we were the naughty kids, I guess, but in a good way. I can picture being at family events with my big Italian family, and there would be you know the the brothers and sisters there, or the sisters as, as most cases for my family that uh, they're all getting along and having a good time, and we're stealing food off each other's plates and you know <laughs> yelling out to mum across the hall just because we know it's annoying her and we're going to get a laugh out of it. So very jovial, um, yeah, but. Again, still very, very tight. And in 2013, your parents separated. Given your childhood sounded pretty awesome and knockabout and lots of great memories there, what impact did that separation have on you? I I think I've conditioned myself to, especially after Dad's passing, to focus on the good because there were plenty of tough times growing up. I knew from a young age that uh, my parents didn't love each other or weren't in love. That was pretty hard to know that they were only together for us kids, um, especially for my younger sister, because she was the youngest. And I've got vivid memories of hearing, you know, mum saying that, you know, essentially once my sister can you know, fend for herself, that, you know, they'll be separating. So they were pretty open with you about that? No. Or you, you, when you say you know or you knew at that time, how did you know that that was the undercurrent that was going on in your parents' yeah. marriage? We, um, we lived in a, a two-storey, you know, relatively large house in East Doncaster, but it wasn't that big. You know, you hear arguments. And my mum coming from, I guess, uh, you know, we joke about the Sicilian side, but there is truth to all stereotypes. Um, you know, she can be very hot-headed and emotional and she wouldn't hide her emotions from us kids. I have vivid memories of her telling us, you know, that's it, she's leaving Dad. And it got to the point where, you know, me and my brother, being the older two, were just like, right, I get it over and done with. And I would have been, you know, 16 at the time. That didn't, you know, soften the impact at all when it actually did happen. Um, yeah, I'll never forget the day that my mum told me when she broke down in um, their ensuite that she was about to go downstairs and, and tell Dad that she was leaving him. How old were you at that time, Richard? 23. Yeah. So yeah. E- even at 23 and you had this story in your mind knowing that it was coming, you're never ready for your parents to separate? No. The, the biggest impact was that, speaking truthfully, is that my mum took it out of me in that moment. That really hurt. And I remember feeling in that moment and seeing... I didn't really feel it on me but I saw the pain that she was in and had been in and all the emotion and I remember at the time I just didn't want to be my father I wanted the the furthest thing I wanted to be was like my father in what way seeing the pain he had caused seeing the uh, the lack of strength at the time I believed you know for not wanting to do anything or or you know um, not seeing things and wanting to fix it I guess not helping himself not helping his family Um, but yeah I just remember and I used the words at the time I I said I I hated him you you told him that I didn't tell him that no what part of the story that you're telling and your dad's behavior do you think is in part to his depression oh I I look back now and after his death is when I fully understood him and his illness. 
And now I look back now, and it's just a pattern, and you can see it forming from when he was, you know, well before I was born, um, you know, when he would have been in his teens. So, yeah, it's uh, the illness played the absolute part. You have said that your dad had a difficult background and was involved in war or, or his parents. His Can you parents. tell us? Yeah, tell us a little bit about kind of his background because often we need to understand that, of course, in order yeah. to understand how we show up. Yep. So dad was one of six. Um, he was the second youngest. Um, yeah, his parents both had been at war, uh, his mum as, as a nurse. And I think like many children of that time or, and many parents, the parents didn't know how to deal with the pain or anything, especially being a male and a young male at that time, he didn't talk about it. And that's what his father did. He buried all the pain and unfortunately took it out on the family. He would abuse alcohol, um, unfortunately the family as well. So there was that part of it. And especially growing up in a family like that, dad knew no no other way. If he was feeling any pain, he wouldn't talk about it. One of the biggest um, impacts dad would have had was as a teenager when he found his brother, my namesake, uh, dead after he had killed himself. And for 30 years um, that my parents had been together, my mum always understood that Richard had accidentally killed himself, cleaning his gun. But, yeah, it took 30 years for him to tell the supposed love of his life that his brother had killed himself. How old was he? Ah... He would have been in his 20s. Um, yeah, and to my understanding, he was harbouring... Richard was harbouring a lot of deep, dark demons as well. And again, couldn't go to anybody in the family. So there's a, a intergenerational pattern of secrets and of mental health issues... Absolutely. ..that were never talked about. Yep. What impact do you think that's had on you? Oh, well... I know that I've been dealing with mental issues or illnesses since I was a teenager and they weren't diagnosed and I didn't start addressing them until I was 25. My sister, similarly, um, and, but she was addressing them as a teenager. It's interesting because the two families, my mum's side and my dad's side, are polar opposites. My nonna um, was the eldest of nine children and dragged the entire family over from a little town in Sicily called Vizzini just after the war, and her parents had died as well. So she was raising her own family as well as raising the rest of her siblings and moving to a brand-new country, and she is the epitome of strength. And the family, the way they talk together, and, and me and my cousins are still, even our children now, they're third cousins, but that's not how they're treated. We're all, we're all family. They're all very close, whereas your yeah, dad's side, even in the short bit that you've just heard, there's a lot of um, not addressing things, a lot of, you know, plainly putting weaknesses in there. But it's funny because those stories and now knowing my dad is what gives me strength, if that makes sense. Which part gives you strength? Knowing his story. So I don't feel any hatred or, or pain towards my father as I did when he was alive because I, I believe that he was essentially given no hope. Growing up in that family, not given the skills, not until he was about probably nearly 50 did he really start addressing the issues that he had. He died at 62. Um, for people listening who 
might be trying to come through and understand and deal with or process something like that. What did you do? How have you managed to forgive and understand and move through uh, to a place now where you can understand your father? Yeah, it's that, that's, that's not a, a, a short answer. I remember, so I hadn't spoken to or seen my father. He died in August 21st, 2018. I hadn't spoken to him or seen him since the year before my birthday, which was June 22nd, 2017. Um there was a few things that happened then that I decided for my own health that I was unfortunately going to have to shut him out because of the pain that he was causing me and, and my family. Um, and I had a habit of going in and trying to, to help him, um, but that always ended up in pain for me. How would you try and help him? There was one time uh, we were living together after I'd moved back from um, country Victoria. Um, and just, I don't know, little things as both cutting back on alcohol together and discussing and being open about myself with him. Um, little things as, you know, wanting to live with him a little bit longer, you know, keep that support around him, try and keep that open conversation going. Did you share any of your own mental health struggles with Absolutely. Him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I spoke about his poison, um, which he would go to when he was tough, and I would share mine with him. Um, so, you know, to try and open myself up to him. So, and, and, and through that, my thinking at the time was, all right, well, if he sees that I'm struggling, maybe he's going to want to do something as well. Um, but often, yeah, that always ended up in, in pain. And my father, we always said, saw himself as the victim. He was always the victim. Um, but, and, and I remember getting the call from, my uncle, my dad's brother, saying that dad had died and then um, my brother called me confirming that dad had taken his own life and my brother used the language something like, um, you know, I don't think it was a coward but, you know, it was along those lines, those stereotypical thoughts about someone who takes their own lives, you know, weak, coward, you know, easy way out, that kind of language. And that night I remember saying to my brother, I was like, I'd... I don't know what to feel. We had a lot of people, you know, sending their condolences to us and, um, you know, as you do when someone dies. And it almost felt like we were not faking it at the time, but we hadn't spoken to him for so long. You know, we were angry with him when he was alive. And I found out that day too that um, he had known that uh, my then fiancé, now wife, was pregnant so I hadn't told him but he knew and to me I was like he knew and he still couldn't stick around at first there was pain but then that later turned into understanding so I was pain you know the pain was like oh well you know you didn't even care that you had a grandson and you didn't want to stick around it wasn't until the following days and 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 weeks and then months that I started to getting started getting an insight into who he was and I took a step back from the emotions and started thinking about things logically, started thinking about myself or how about when, how I am when I go through, um, you know, the troughs, I guess, you know, when you're going through those hard times. And I started looking about at my dad's pattern of behaviour and how he'd been slowly pushing everybody away. And I started thinking about dad always wanted something. Growing up, he always wanted a boat. He got a boat. And then after a few years, he sold it. 
And then when mum and dad split up, he wanted a house in Marysville. He built it, he sold it. He wanted a caravan, travel around Australia. He got it, he didn't do it, he sold it. Then he was moving to Thailand um, and he didn't last there a year. Um, so was he living there at the time? He was living death? there, yeah. He'd, he'd moved there at the end of 2017, about December. Um, and he essentially went there, spent all the money that he had and it came very clear that he went there to die. Mm. So Dad was always chasing something. What was he chasing? Well, he wanted to fill the void. He wanted to fill the pain, whether that was through alcohol or whether that was, oh, the boat, oh, the caravan, oh, the house. You know, he was always trying to fill something and try to move on from this pain that he had. So it became very clear that he was, you know, running, running from himself and then he was backed into a corner and I believe... Now, and I always will believe that Dad went to Thailand to die. Mm. He had a plan and he went there. And it wasn't until I started understanding that pain and the illness, you, and it's funny because we look at it, hopefully, most people, as, as logical and rational, healthy humans, but that's not what he was. Mm-hmm. He wasn't rational, he wasn't logical because he was ill. And that's if you take the emotion out of it, you start to understand what someone like that is going through. And, you know, I don't have, hold anything personal towards him. I know there's nothing I could have done to save my dad's life. There's no more I could have given him. I tried to give him everything. Um, everybody around him, had a, he had a lot of support. Unfortunately, my dad was just very ill. If you could go back up the river, and obviously you've tried to do an enormous amount for your dad through his life, if you could go back up the river... What's something that might have helped him at a point at which it might have made a difference? How far do you want to go back? (laughs) As far as you want to go. There's nothing I could have done in my life that could have saved him. He knew he had a grandson um, coming and I knew that wasn't enough. My dad would be the the greatest grandfather. Um, He always wanted um, grandkids even, you know, from... Even us as a young age, having a girlfriend at 18, he'd start talking about it. It's like, all right, let's just settle down. So I knew that he always wanted that. Um, unfortunately, my dad was, a, funnily enough, he was a victim of his time and his family. Um, it would have had to have gone way back to his parents' attitude. That's, that's where it goes back. That's why I say my dad was given no chance. So he inherited a lot of, he inherited a lot of trauma and darkness. Well, he inherited that and people... Yeah, and I've experienced a lot in my life, but I worked my way through it. He inherited those darknesses and experienced them, but he, what he didn't inherit and what he wasn't given was the tools about how to deal with them, um, the coping mechanisms or anything like that. That's, that's where my dad was given no chance. And that goes back to his, his family and his upbringing and his support. We know that depression usually comes about as some kind of combination of nature and nurture. So there is a genetic component, but also, as you've well explained from your father's experience, that uh, things we live through impact our experience of depression too. I've heard a lot of people say, um, it's in my genes, it's in my family tree, so what can I do? There's a stuckness, there's a, a resignation which we know is not the case because, as you say, what's in our toolkit makes a big difference. How and what are you doing to break the cycle? My namesake killed himself. My dad killed himself. 
um, me and my sister suffer from mental illness um, and both have, um, you know, uh, had experience with self-harm. <laughs> so um, there's definitely a part of it's in your blood. Um, but where I differ, where my sister differs, is that um, we've been able to identify it from a young age. Um, we grew up in a supporting household. We've got um, great support and great network around us. Um, I see a psychologist um, indifferently throughout the year, sometimes on a weekly basis, sometimes I don't see her for eight months. Um, we both take medication. We both take care of ourselves. So we're very uh, understanding and aware that it's a lifelong illness. I know that um, I'm never going to be cured of having a mental illness. Um, I've said that if I have to be on my medication for every day of the rest of my life, I'm happy with that as long as I know that it's helping me. Um, so it's taking care of yourselves. It's acknowledging those weaknesses and, and having to fight. And the fight is the most exhausting thing sometimes. And that's why when you're going well, when I'm going well, I make sure that I'm practising things and even if it's, you know, the way I, I talk to myself um, or even think about things, I'm just training myself. So when I hit those troughs, when I hit those down times that I know that I can get through it, sometimes they linger longer than other times, um, but I know that I'll have one coming up, but I know I'll, I'll get through it. How will you parent your son as he gets older in terms of what you know about uh, your your history and then the history that he in turn will will carry on. What what when you think about parenting him, what will you do and what sort of tools will you try and equip him with so that he's able to move through his own life? Yep, I'll be um, open and honest with him. Um, in a weird way, I look forward to when he's old enough to sitting down and having the conversation about my dad with him. Um, you know, I picture us sitting down with a beer and I say, all right, let's, let's share the, the full story of, of your granddad. Um, that, I th- you know, and I don't have a, you know, a date in mind for that. I think I'll have to suss out, you know, his maturity and because the full story of dad is pretty dark and is, is, is pretty heavy to take. But I will be honest with, with my children about um, myself and family and the history because that was one thing that we weren't told and not necessarily protected from but we just weren't aware and, and that was because dad didn't share so I'm going to promote a very you know open and 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 an honest family um if Harry's having a tough day I want him to come to dad I want him to come to mum and say you know I have a shit day at school you know Johnny's called me a bad name. If it's something as small as that or if you're having some real troubles, you know, just train him from a young age. It's something that I never did and never could do. Um, I've had to train myself to do it um, with my wife, Jess, and even with close friends. But that's the type of things that I'll be promoting um, with my children. And if, unfortunately, he's, you know, got the, the beast that his family is bad, well, then we'll work through that together too. So to help give him those tools from a young age so that if he does go through tough times that he's got the tools to get through it. A lot of people in their marriages and relationships, um, one person's living with a mental health issue, maybe both are, 
what what are your thoughts on the best way to navigate that and how do you do that with you and Jess with regards to your depression? I feel sorry for Jess the most out of anybody I know because not she has to live with me, but well, she, she lives... Chooses, she chooses to. Yeah, but she lives with someone with um, a mental illness and she can wear the biggest burden out of anybody. Um, she's the most supportive person I have around me. Um, she knows all the darkness. Um, but again, the, the, the thing that we promote about it is just that, that openness. I tell her if I'm having a dark day, I tell her about the really dark thoughts that I've had at times um, because I know if I'm keeping that to myself that I'm not doing any good for anyone. And she understands it too. She understands um, that how important my mental health is to us as a family and I, hers as well, obviously. Um, yeah, so it's, it, just, it just keeps coming back to it's pretty basic and pretty mundane but it's just that open honesty and especially when things are tough or are getting tough it's just telling her and she you know make sure that she says right oh well I know you need some new time whether you go for a ride on your motorbike or go have a beer with one of the boys go have a chat you know go and have some new time I've got Harry you do you there's sometimes a contagion factor with depression in families have you experienced that maritally a little bit. Um, I sometimes see some bad habits that Jess has picked up or things that she's carried through her life. But again, it comes back to just breaking it down. Um, I've shared some skills that I've picked up along the way with her. Um, yeah, it just it, again, just breaking it down and, and, and talking about it, yeah. But I don't think that she's going to catch depression. <laughs> <laughs> Not from sneezing. <laughs> no. Um, in terms of breaking it down, so communicating and being open is one of the things. What are some of those other really practical things that you do to stay well? I used to struggle a lot with the grey. Things had to be black and white for me. So I've had to train myself to accept that things are going to be uncertain. Um, and that's something that, uh, I've promoted with Jess as well. Um, Jess always, um, her natural instinct would be to look at the end result as opposed to looking at the next step. So she would see one problem in front of her, and I've done this too, and you think about all the million things that could go wrong. Well, why are you worrying about all the million things that could go wrong when there's only going to be one outcome? So just breaking things down like that, you know, looking at what is next as opposed to what is five steps after that. That's really helped me and that's helped me accept the grey, that there is going to be uncertainty but you can't control that. So really just to control what you can control and the rest will be the rest. How do you view suicide now? Completely different to I would have um, 18 months ago. Yep, I was probably stereotypical... You know, it's a, it's a coward's way out. Um, it's, it's weakness. Um, I used to view it as a choice, whereas now I it firmly believe it's not a choice. It's a series of choices. It's a, it's a lifelong... Um, yeah, there's, there's a life leading into that, um, and it's an illness. Um, my dad was in a lot, a lot of pain, and to think that... He 
that was the first time that he tried it, would be ignorant. I know that Dad would have tried it umpteen times and it would have, it would have been because of the pain. I, um, so I definitely don't see it as a weakness anymore. I, the way I view suicide is uh, the way I view someone suffering from cancer. It's the cancer of the mind is the best way that I can describe to people that can't grasp it. Dad had been fighting this cancer for so long. He'd gone into remission and he'd beaten it with medication sometimes. But then it came back and it was, it was not going to leave. It was just taking over and had a rapid rate at the end. Um, and then it killed him. Um, because when someone is that ill, there's no rational thinking. There's no logical thinking. It's parts of the brain that are, are taken over. He wasn't him. Uh, uh, at the end, those last few years when he had pushed us away, he wasn't the person that he was. He was the result of of a dark illness. Um, that's why I, I, I tell people. That's why I said in my eulogy for people to remember the things that you loved about Dad. Don't remember the last few years because that wasn't him. You know, I had uncles and aunties telling me, and one of them mentioned on the day that. You'd walk into Dad's house, wherever that would be, and before he even shook your hand, you know, there was a drink in your hand. And in the last few years, they said, yeah, we thought something was up when they went around to his house and they weren't even offered a glass of water the entire time they were there. And I said, yeah, he wasn't him. Mm. That wasn't Dad, was it? And they're like, no, it wasn't him. That wasn't the person we knew. That wasn't the person we grew to love. So this, this illness, the suicide, which I put into it, you know, it's, it's a cancer and it just took over him. And what about for people listening who are thinking about suicide themselves? Honestly, you know, I've, I've been there. That's how dark um, it's been for me. Unfortunately, and you can talk about your support groups, you can talk about, um, you know, people being around you and helping you. At the end of the day, there's only one person that can help you, and that's you. And it's when the fight is the toughest is when you just got to dig deep. Unfortunately, you got to keep going. You got to go back to those things that you taught yourself. And it's and it's not a quick decision either. It's not um, all right. Well, all right. I'm going to switch out of this and I'm going to be better and I'm going to be fine. You've got to pick yourself up when you're at the absolute lowest and then go back to the basics and try and slowly claw your way out of it. There's there's no there's no easy. There's no easy answer, unfortunately, but you've just got to go step back and look at the things that you know that, that work for you, whether that be medication, whether that be seeing a psychologist, whether that be talking to a mate, whether that be staying off alcohol, going for a run, playing footy, whatever it is. Um, I feel sorry for anybody that's in that position because it's a, it's a very, very lonely spot to be in. And that's you know what I hate most about thinking about my father in, in those moments. He was, he was alone. He would have been scared. Um, I like to think he would have been thinking about us kids, but I don't know. And you know, that's one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll never know. But I do know that he was just in an immense amount of pain. Tell us about some of the parts of your dad that you will ensure live on in you. Yep. Um, the, the, the only parts that live on in me and around in my family are the good times and, you know, the, the, the piss-taking of him. <laughs> in the eulogy I mentioned a few things, um, the old mannerisms of his and we as an extended family, you know, still talk about that. You know, he would rub his beard a certain way after he'd have a few drinks and 
he would also have some flamboyant tendencies just about how he would, you know, cock his, his hand a little bit. Um, he reminded me sometimes of uh, Jack McFarlane from, <laughs> from um, uh, Will and Grace. Just the mannerisms. I'm, I'm <laughs> in no way saying that my father was um, a closeted homosexual. Not that there would be anything wrong with that. I don't think that he was. But just saying, you know, a few of those tendencies that he would have just that were very stereotypically my father. Um, but the things that I miss, you know, every time I watch Hawthorne play, um, I think of Dad is always with me. Uh, anytime I pick up a, a dart to play darts, um, I always think of Dad. I've got his pool cue at my house. Um, it's just, there's just so many little parts of of life that I just think of dad. Every time I look at my son, Harry, um, I think about his granddad um, and what he would have been like. Um, every time I hear, you know, music that dad would have listened to, um, it's just in those those little things. Yeah, so um, you found ways to continue to celebrate the good times while still acknowledging the seriousness and the pain of the hard times. Absolutely, and I don't shy away from uh, the darkness or the hard times. Um, we talk about that still as a, as a family. Um, I have uncles that ask me questions um, just because they don't understand. Um, so I just enlighten them a little bit of what would have been going through his mind and how the illness would have taken place over X amount of years and, and whatnot. Anything that I feel like I can um, help other people understand and help them cope with, um, uh, yeah. yeah. It sounds like you are doing an amazing job then in some way helping the rest of your family to understand the amazing person your father was uh, despite the fact that he lived with such a challenging illness. So go you, keep keep doing that because it's so important to cascade that knowledge given you've got rich insight and lived experience in some respect as well. We always like to end our chats. Um, part of this podcast is really understanding what's um, under the skin of people and people who are out there living their lives and doing human well. Who do you think is doing human well? Who do I think is doing human well? Wow, I didn't expect that coming. We thought we'd just throw one in there. <laughs> oh, can it be anybody? Anybody. Yeah. Someone you might admire or you go, that person's having a hard time, but geez, they're coping well. What, whatever. It's, it's anyone that you think, you look at and you think, you know, they are actually doing a good job of doing this human thing. I probably, it's really close to home, I probably look at my best mate. Um, he's always a, a bit of a, um, uh, a guide of how to human for me. I, I look at what, you know, what is good or what should be good or almost sometimes what would he do. Um, yeah, I, yeah, he's, yeah, he, he gets me through a lot and he's the other person that knows absolutely everything about me, the good and the bad. Um, What's in his guidebook? If we opened his guidebook, what would we how to learn? Human. Yes, yeah, how to human. Right, <laughs> mind Richard's you, best mate. If he heard this being said about him, he would just fall off his chair and absolute laugh. What's his name? Ed. Hey, Ed. Ed. <laughs> Crimo. Um, he's a part of the family. Literally, um, my nonna before she died, she had quite bad dementia, Alzheimer's. She wouldn't recognise anybody in the family, but as soon as you mentioned Crimo. She still even knew who he was. So, um, yeah, he's been around since, you know, we were teenagers. But um, what would be in his... I 
he wouldn't even be able to answer that. I think it'd just be taking care of the ones you love. Um, it's probably as basic as that. Yeah. He's the one person that I know if I call, he'll be at my doorstep whenever I need him. So, yeah. Cheers to Ed. Cheers to Ed. Cheers to you. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 